As I said, I want to keep um, following in um, the order of the book. I want to keep the book relevant to our discussion. So what we're going to do now is take a quick look at the book so that I highlight for you some of the things that he says in here. If you look at page 89 onward, this is speaking about, um, uh, speaking about the generation of the companions. He mentions in here some critical things. The first thing, on page 91, he says, the companions restricting themselves to the blessed sharia. That was one of the hallmarks of this stage, of this time period. And they actually followed the example of the Prophet ﷺ, where he, the Prophet ﷺ, describes to them about his path. One time, there's a hadith that says and, um, that, that the Prophet ﷺ drew lines, right? Uh, at the bottom of page 91, he said, uh, or sorry, at the top of page 92, actually, in the English, the Messenger of Allah drew a line. Then he said, this is the way of Allah. He then drew some lines to its right and left, and he said, these are the diverging ways. On each of these ways, there is a, shay- uh, there is a shaitan calling to it. And then he recited to them this verse, mustaqiman. So the companions were committed to sharia. In fact, during the time of the Prophet Wasallam, Sayyidina Umar was seen holding uh, previous scriptures in his hands, uh, the Torah, and he was searching for guidance in it. So the Prophet Wasallam got very upset with Umar, and he said to him, as you can see on page 92, um, he said to him, so, so the Messenger of Allah was irate when he found Umar al-Khattab consulting the Torah and admiring its contents. It was reported from a darimi that Umar al-Khattab came to the Messenger of Allah with a copy of the Torah and said, O Messenger of Allah, this is a copy of the Torah. But the Prophet ﷺ kept silent. As he began reading it, the face of the Prophet ﷺ was changing. Abu Bakr then said, may your, you know, may your mother lose you. This was a form of expression. Uh, uh, that they had among the Arabs So he said to Sayyidina Umar uh, May your mother lose you Meaning what have you done You've done something so wrong How could you possibly do this You've upset the Prophet So then what did he say after that Can't you see the face of the messenger of Allah Thereupon Umar looked at the Prophet And he was upset And then said, and said I seek refuge with Allah From the anger of Allah And the anger of his messenger so then the Prophet ﷺ told him, by the one in whose hand is the soul of Muhammad, if Musa appears to you and you follow him and abandon me, you will be misguided from the straight path. If, we, if he were alive and witnessed my prophethood, he would have followed me. This is, again, an authentic hadith. And this doesn't mean that you can't, you can't learn what's in previous scripture, but this is speaking to the Prophet ﷺ as he saw Umar being... Impressed and amazed by what he found in the Torah as a source of guidance comparable to the guidance of the Prophet. No, it's not. The Prophet's guidance, Islam's guidance, this comes first. If I'm going to consult previous scripture, scripture, it's for me to expand my knowledge. But to get my guidance, it's from the Quran, it's from the Sunnah. To expand my knowledge, this is a different story. So, the other thing that he speaks about here, they, they gave precedence to Sharia over their personal opinions. And then he speaks a little bit about. Ra'i um, in, in a negative sense Then the third principle He says they're duly valuing Personal uh, their uh, Ijtihad they, you know, they, During the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam set the standard for them 
to do what we call ijtihad. That is what? Exerting themselves in uncovering the rulings of things that are not clearly addressed in the Quran and Sunnah. That's what ijtihad is. So the companions did this. They learned this. And not following whoever opposes the Sharia text, no matter how high their status is, then, um, uh, then also uh, going to follow ijtihad when there is no clear evidence in the Quran or Sunnah. Uh, he mentions many other principles. Um, the companions avoiding differences in argumentation. Uh, verifying and deliberating in ijtihad and not hastening to give fatwa. They would consult one another, as we said. You can find this on page 100 and 101 in the book. These are all principles that mark the time of the companions. Now, and then uh, the last one, page 104 and 105, he sums up to you here, avoiding questions which are disliked by sharia. Right? And he gives examples of this. He gives uh, four, uh, five examples of lines of questioning that are not appropriate. So all of this you could read on your own. And then he mentions on 109 how the, the companions asked questions of the Prophet ﷺ. Right, so that's about that. Then the era of successors. This tells us a little bit more about what we started discussing in the end of the session. Page 114, 115. He mentions the beginning of this era. Um, uh, we, we say here, وَيَبْدَأْ هَذَا الْعَصْرِ مِنْ تَنَازُلِ الْحَسَنِ بْنِ عَلِيِّ بْنِ أَبِي طَالِبْ عَنِ الْخِلَافَةِ This second stage, this, uh, sorry, this third stage started when Sayyidina Hassan gave up Khilafah, the 40th year after Hijrah, and it continues on the, until the end of the Umayyad Khilafah. وَيَنْتَهِي بِانْتِهَاءِ الدَّوْلَ الْأُمَوِيَةِ This is stated on page 114, right? And then he mentions how did the successors acquire their fiqh? He mentions Al-Hasan al-Basri who met 500 men from among the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, right? Um, and he mentions five, four companions, four companions who were consider, considered the greatest teachers of the, second, of the second generation, the successors. Who were the greatest teachers of the tabi'een? Four sahaba. Who were they? Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, right? Zayd ibn Thabit, Abdullah ibn Umar, and Abdullah ibn Abbas. So three Abdullahs, right? Abdullah, Abdullah, Abdullah. These three Abdullahs were very, very um, prestigious from among the companions. There actually is something, um, it notes, uh, that we, we have this point of reference among the Sahaba, it's called Al-Abadila Al-Arba'a. Who are the four Abdullahs? These are young companions who when the Prophet ﷺ passed away, they were all young, but they're considered scholars among the companions. Who are they? Abdullah ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Umar, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As, and Abdullah ibn al-Zubayr. Right? These are the four Abdullahs that are of high prestige. From, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was not one of them. Because Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was a little older when the Prophet ﷺ passed away. But these are four companions who when the Prophet passed away, they were young, yet they became great scholars. Okay? So, so this, is, um, this is about that. Now, he mentions uh, on 116, the school of the people of opinion, the rise of the schools of fiqh. He continues to mention Medina's fiqh school 
on page 118 with Al-Fuqaha al-Sab'a. That's, these are seven great scholars from the early generations, 118. And then he mentions Kufa school, uh, Madrasat al-Kufa, 119. These are all, this is all speaking to um, things that we mention. Oh, okay. So, and here, th- this was the narration I was looking for earlier on the page, top of page 121. So Abu Dawood in the Tirmidhi report that uh, Qais ibn Kathir said, I was sitting with Abu Darda in the mosque of Damascus. A man came to him and said, Oh Abu Darda, I have come to you from the city of Allah's Messenger for a hadith that I've heard you relate from Allah's Messenger. I have come for no other purpose, he said to him. So then, what did he say? He said to him, فَإِنِّي سَمِعْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَمَ يَقُولْ مَنْ سَلَكَ طَرِيقًا يَبْتَغِي فِيهِ عِلْمًا سَهَلَ اللَّهُ بِهِ طَرِيقًا إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ وَإِنَّ الْمَلَائِكَةَ لَتَضَعُ أَجْنِحَتَهَا رِضًا لِطَالِبِ الْعِلْمِ Right, he says here that the Prophet said, whoever travels on a road in search of knowledge, Allah will place him on a road to paradise. Indeed, the angels will lower their wings for the seeker of knowledge out of pleasure for what he seeks. Indeed, the scholar is sought forgiveness for by the inhabitants of the heavens and the earth and even by the fish in the oceans. The, superior, uh, the superiority of the scholar over the devout worshiper is like that of the moon on the night when it is full over the rest of the stars. The scholars are the heirs of the prophets and the prophets have not left for inheritance a dinar or a dirham but rather, they left knowledge. So whoever takes it, has certain take, it's certainly taken an abundant share. This really makes you want to learn, right? This hadith is a beautiful hadith. It makes you want to learn. I want this. I want, I want to, the, uh, to have this special status where even animals and even the angels are all praying and making dua for me. Right? So this is the beautiful hadith I was looking for. And it shows um, one of the features of this time, uh, time period. Um, now, uh, and then also uh, speaks a little bit about, uh, you know, the spread of narrations. Uh, then, now basically where we're at is Unit 6. Where This is what the new section is about. Uh, unit 6, page 128, 129, and onward, right? So, um, again, I just want to emphasize... And this, brought, this was brought to my attention about the survey. If you didn't do it, please do it. If you do it, in the end of the survey, you need to click Submit uh, in order for us, for us to get it. So maybe some people filled it out, didn't realize. It'll take you to a last page where you need to click Submit in the end. So please don't forget to click Submit in the end of the uh, survey so that we get your feedback, inshallah. Now, before we get into the new stuff, I want to see if there are... Um, any questions? I'll start off with the Slido. I'll go back to it, see if anyone posted any new questions there. Uh, Bismillah. So, um, so do Shia and other branches of Muslims believe in the Sunnah and Hadith? If not, how is their deen complete? Uh, Shia do believe in Hadith, right? Now, their sources of Hadith may be different than Sunni sources. But they believe in hadith as a concept. They believe in um, uh, the transmission of hadith from the Prophet ﷺ. And then again, Shia are not all the same, right? So some Shia have are ghula, have gone to an extreme, and others are closer to Sunni Islam. So we can't lump them up in one uh, one category. 
there are different kinds of Shia, but in general they do believe in the Sunnah. That's why they're not going to be discounted from Islam. Like we said, if someone categorically denies Sunnah, this person will leave Islam. Right? This is what the scholars teach us. Alright, so this is uh, about that. Uh, so we, you know, the, those who are not extreme from among the Shia, we would say they're still Muslim, even though they've fallen into innovation and bid'ah. Right? But I will not say that there, it, be, it should take a lot for me to say someone is not a Muslim. I cannot say this easily. I need to affirm and confirm. So to lump them up all in one category and say they're all disbelievers, this is tough to say. I cannot do this. Uh, uh, but I can say that perhaps some extreme groups from among the Shia have beliefs that take them out of the folds of Islam. Uh, but this is going to be need to verify it on a case-by-case -case situation. Okay? So that's about that. Um, does anyone have any questions up until now about what we've, what we've been discussing? Yes. Oh, there's a hadith that say um, that the most beloved names to Allah are that which start with um, uh, uh, that would start with Abd and that would start that which relates to praise. So, Abd would be like Abdullah, Abdul Rahman, um, you know, and then any other names from Allah Abdul Wahid, Abdul Warith, Abdul Kadha, all these names. Uh, and, or the name of Muhammad, Muhammad, Ahmad, uh, Mahmoud, these names are very blessed and beautiful and dear to Allah. Okay? Okay, um, any other question that we have up until now? We're coming close to the end of the course. We're going to have this session now, and we're going to have one last pause, and then we're going to have one uh, more session, and then we're going to be done. And inshallah, you guys can conclude the day with Salat al-Isha. Alhamdulillah, we're going to have Salat al-Isha soon, and then we'll be done for today. So just a little longer, hang in there inshallah. Okay, now, um, the next stage... The fourth stage is one of vibrancy and growth. Now, we need to understand the dynamic historically. And this is slide 72. Historically speaking, there were points of, um, there were points of growth and points of weakness for Islamic knowledge. And we find that the social realities of each time period affected the condition of knowledge. What do we mean by social realities? When ulama and scholars found support from the khulafa, we found that this led to great scholarship. What does that mean? When they were funded, when they were supported, when they did not have to worry about their sources of living. When the, the khulafa funded um, academic projects, when there were think tanks, when the, the khulafa promoted fiqh and fiqh learning, this all led to freedom of thought. And this is a critical part. You know, this is, a, this is one of the disastrous things in our times, and it's actually one of the things that has led to the great decline of Islamic knowledge in our time period. Uh, when scholarship becomes um, so ill-funded, that people who invest their time in learning about Islam have to worry about um, finding a basic living. Now, of course, studying Islam is not in our day and age. Uh, in, if you go back home, <laughs> the ones 
who go to the field of Islamic studies are the ones who failed out of every other field, right? And then I, I've st I studied in Egypt. Uh, I was born and raised here, but I studied in Egypt. And I know every person who got a low GPA in high school who couldn't get into uh, the field of medicine or the field of uh, uh, engineering or becoming a lawyer or kada, they'd throw them in Islamic studies. Go study Islam. You find yourself a little masjid and everything will be all good. Right? What does that mean? What did that lead to? It led to the decline of thought because the people investing themselves in this are not people who are of high academic abilities. So this is one of the things. And the other thing is the subjugation of religious messaging. Now, of course, this is you know, the subjugation. You know, if you go back home to our Muslim countries, again, there is this element of subjugation. You're not allowed to talk. Open your mouth. You're given, your, your khutbah needs to be written and approved by the powers that be. And you're not allowed to gather and form in any way. In many countries, doing something like this, if it wasn't sponsored by the state, like if I, if I wasn't from the Ministry of Endowments and Awqaf, you'd all end up in prison. Me too. I'd be the first one. We'll all go right to prison from here. Literally. That's what happens in some of our Muslim countries. You're not allowed to assemble because any form of assembly would pose a threat to the powers that be. Right? So here, historically, this was also true. That part of the development of civilization was... For the scholars being allowed to have academic debate, have um, uh, freedom of thought, write down books, and produce academic material, and have discussions. This is what was in Islam's age of vibrancy and growth. It led to the development of civilization. And that's why, why did fiqh need to develop the way it developed? Why did it need to be codified the way it was codified? Because Islam boomed into a civilization that thrived for over a thousand years. Now, any ignoramus who comes in our time to undermine the Hanafi school, for example, does not realize that this was a madhab and a school of legal thought that flourished for centuries, sponsored by the state, addressing real-life situations, actually having centuries of experience in addressing matters of law through the courts and through fatwa. And now an ignorant comes, brings us a hadith and says, hadith of uh, Imam Abu Hanifa's madhab is weak, not realizing that there's hundreds of years behind this scholarly work that was put together. Same thing with the other madahib, the Shafi school, the Maliki school, the Hanbali school. It was not four individuals who are sitting in a room drinking some tea and having some cookies or something and putting together some legal opinions. You're talking about a scholarly tradition that was passed on generation after generation, reviewed, assessed, debated, and books written in response or in defense. All this, this is, this is what, you know, this is the thing that many who live in our time do not understand about the Islamic tradition. It wasn't just a bunch of people sitting in the masjid praying salawat and reading Quran. This was a civilization. When I start understanding the magnitude of that, I'll start respecting. Oh my God, okay, I need to take a few steps and a few breaths before I discount centuries of work. Right? So this is the stages of vibrancy and growth. Civilization was developed. Books were written. 
you know, uh, the, I'll tell you, there's not enough time in this, in this intensive to go over some of this stuff. There is one book that was written in the Shafi'i school. I studied the Shafi'i school. I'm a student of the Shafi'i school. Um, and uh, one of the books, it's, it's called Al-Manhaj by Sheikh al-Islam Zakari al-Ansari. He's one of the great scholars, later scholars of Islam, late, later generations. This book, during his lifetime, was reviewed in Al-Azhar 500 times. They went through the book once, twice, thrice, and they kept on reviewing it, and they had debate and discussion. And, you know, to produce a scholar, this, was, this is something that was like a 20-year, 30-year project. Before someone sat down and gave fatwa, now in our day and age, we go a few years, study overseas, at best, at best. Study a few years overseas, and I come back, I'm Mufti Fulan, right? Uh, but back then, it was, there was this, um, <laughs> there's this funny meme that they have, uh, they share it online. Uh, it's two pictures. One picture of this, old, this, this image of this scholar in this vast library, and he says, in it, I dedicated the past 20 years of my life to reading these books. And then the other picture next to it is of this young punk with a drink in his hand, sipping from it from a straw, and he has his computer in front of him. I said, I got the answer to this question by looking something for five minutes up on Google, right? This is the reality. It's the reality. So again, the, we need to understand these dynamics of the past and present. That's part of what's beneficial in understanding this history. The stages of vibrancy and growth. What, page, what time frame are we talking about? These are the khulafa, the notable khulafa who um, promoted this knowledge. This was 70, 73, uh, slide 73. One of them, his name was Abu Ja'far al-Mansur. Right? He's a very, very well-known scholar, of the uh, well-known khalifa in the Abbasid Empire. He was the second Abbasid khalifa. Now, his time of rule was after the year 100. I think it was like 136 or something like that. Uh, but he was born in the year 95, and he passed away in 158. Right? So the, the, the dates that you see there are their birth and death. That's what you see. So, but he's the second Abbasid Khalifa, Abu Ja'far al-Mansur. The third one, Muhammad al-Mahdi. The fifth one, also, this one's a very, very important uh, Khalifa in our past to know about. Harun al-Rashid, very, very famous. He actually is the one, one of the greatest supporters of Islamic scholarship. During his time, it flourished big time. Harun al-Rashid. And then al-Khalifa al-Ma'moon, the seventh uh, Abbasid Khalifa. And that's the time frame that he had over there. Now, here it gives you the, the, the Umayyad dynasty was from the year 41 to approximately the 132, uh, 132 after Hijrah. Uh, this is 41 to 132. It's less than a century. That's how long the Umayyad dynasty last, lasted. The Abbasid Empire, it lasted from 132 until 750 after, after Hijrah. That's a, uh, sorry, uh, not after Hijrah. That's wrong. Uh, uh, common error. Uh, so, so wait, no, no, no. After Hijrah, yeah, that's true. Uh, so, so 750 after Hijrah, right? We're talking about in common era. This is like... Um, if the Prophet was in 600-something common era, uh, 631, he passed away. If you add uh, 631 to 750, uh, you're talking about 13-something, right? The, the 13, this is talking, you're talking about 700 years ago, 
700 years ago or 800 years ago, that's when the Abbasid Khilafah collapsed. And of course, we're talking about a critical time in history. We're talking about, um, uh, the, have you guys ever heard of the Tatar? You guys heard of the Tartars uh, and how they uh, pillaged and destroyed and ransacked uh, cities, uh, the biggest of which was Baghdad, which was a center of learning. When the Tatar came into Baghdad, they took all of the books in the library of Baghdad and they threw it into the river. And it, the, there were so many books that the river's color changed to dark because of all the ink that was on those books, right? That was ransacked. Um, uh, so this was a cr critical time. And then the Ottomans came later on. Uh, now this is, the, the, so the third one, the Ottoman Empire, this is according to the Gregorian calendar, not the Hijri calendar. So the first two were the Hijri calendars, 41 to 132, then 132 to 750, that's Hijri, Hijri. Uh, now the Ottomans, um, according to the Hijri, would be soon after uh, the Abbasids. They continued uh, from 1299, uh, 1299 uh, common era until 1923, until World War I finished. And then the, after the World War I finished, the Ottoman Empire was done. And that's when the whole concept of Khilafah was done away with. And we were left with... Um, apartheid, uh, not apartheid, sorry, despots and uh, uh, tyrants, nation-state reality. This is what Sykes-Picot did and what the West did in dismantling the Muslim world and in uh, basically putting a chokehold on Islamic scholarship and on the Muslim ummah. Um, so that's what happened in the modern time. So this is basically a summary of history. This is an important slide to have in mind, Right? Now, the impact of politics on social conditions and on scholarship. Look, the wealth of growth due to ideological and fiqhi differences. One of the things that we notice is in the history of Islamic law, when there were a lot of debates and differing opinions, this actually enriched Islamic law. It enriched it. The presence of madhahib wasn't a toxic reality. Some people, they have a very diluted understanding of fiqh. They have this approach, it's called the non-madhabist approach to fiqh. They want to, they, they want to negate this whole idea of madhahib. I follow what the Prophet did. I don't follow Imam Shafi'i, I don't follow Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, or Imam Ahmad. These people, they have a very twisted understanding. As though Imam Shafi'i was following Iblis. Yani, who was Imam Shafi'i following? He wasn't following the Prophet right? They were all following the Prophet well, then why did they differ? Well, we'll talk about that. That's going to be in the last session, inshallah. Why did they differ, inshallah? We're going to talk about that. But um, do, in principle, do each of them claim to follow the Prophet ﷺ? Of course. Of course. The presence of madhahib was a positive one in Islamic history. It was not a negative one. Right? So the wealth of growth due to ideological difference. When Harun al-Rashid heard the muwatta of Imam Malik... He wanted to impose it upon the Ummah. What did he tell Imam Malik? He said, he said, after Imam Malik put together Al-Muwatta, this grand and great, magnificent work from our Islamic tradition, 
He said, I want to make copies of this and, and provide it to all of the provinces of Islam so it could be opposed upon them. So Imam Malik told him, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, la taf'al. Do not do this. The companions of the Prophet ﷺ continued to differ in fiqh. And they traveled throughout the land. All having valid perspectives. Do not dismantle this beautiful aspect of Islam that makes it rich. Right? So ikhtilaf is actually a source of mercy. There's actually a hadith that says this. Ikhtilafu ummati rahmah. The difference of opinion in my ummah is a source of mercy for it. Right? Some people say the hadith is weak. But in fact, the meaning of it has been embraced by the ummah. The ummah has be, always perceived difference of opinion in secondary matters, in furu' as a source of mercy. Right? Now, the impact of civilization, growth, and cultural interaction on scholarship. When new things happened, it needed the scholars to exert their efforts in addressing these realities. And this is one of the challenges, by the way, of the modern times. I know I'm the sessions... Are, are the, the topics are kind of being mixed together, all pull, pull, pushing into one pool. One of the challenges in our modern times for scholarship is humanity has grown in the past 120 years, since the turn of the century, of the 20th century. More than any other time frame in human history, so much change has happened from the Industrial Revolution into the, the, uh, into the uh, uh, modern era and then the postmodern era. And the scholars of Islam, because of the decline of the Ummah in the modern day, were not able to keep up with the quickly changing times because they did not have the funding, they did not have the support, they did not have the freedom. To address these realities, that's why when you come to answer one of the most complicated things, keep on getting the same questions. What's the ruling on getting a mortgage on a house? Well, why isn't it just a very quick answer? And it's this massive discussion. Because the, the realities of modern day time are not imposed by Islamic principles. They're imposed by the realities, certain realities that are foreign to Islam. And that conflict with Islamic values. And the scholars find themselves in a position where we need to navigate a reality and find ways to reconcile between what is and what should be. What is, meaning the reality, and what should be, meaning our commitment to Islamic values. So that's why it's not a clear-cut, easy answer to tell you, go get a mortgage, don't get a mortgage. And we need to start telling you, well, we have this thing called Islamic mortgage companies and they do it by doing, you know, and they sell, they do a contract with you and they sell it in the secondary market and, um, they, and so many other uh, dynamics in fiqh that need full lecture just to answer this one question. Why? Because we have to navigate a complicated reality. And scholarship has not stayed at the same level that it used to be. So these things are not being pumped out at the level that is needed to address the demand. Right. Anyway, going back to here. Living in silos versus critical engagement. One of the greatest things that came about from Madrasat Ahl Ra'i. You know, by the way, and of course, um, I'm speaking about Imam Abu Hanifa in such great terms. And I keep on saying the Hanafi school, even though I'm not Hanafi. Because anyone who knows anything about fiqh must know the honor of Abu Hanifa in fiqh. 
as being Imam Ahlul Ra'i, the, the scholar who taught people how to think with a fiqhi mind. That's why they call him Imam Al-A'zam, the greatest Imam. And, they, and even other Imams who were not followers of Abu Hanifa, they said, People in fiqh are dependent on Abu Hanifa and the critical thing that he introduced in what critical engagement? Debate, scholarly debate. Um, supposing certain hypotheticals that gave birth to this wide and vast ocean of probabilities you will find in early fiqh books that they suggested probabilities that in the past were so, so far-fetched that it seemed like, what is this? It's nonsense. But those hypotheticals in the early day actually helped us some understand some modern-day fiqh issues that apply to us today. Right? So again, th these are all critical things to understand. Um, fiqh was really enriched by these realities, right? So, what happened here? The, the second stage, it limited their tafsir to transmitted interpretations of the Qur'an they heard from the Prophet ﷺ. The third stage included statements from the companions as well as ijtihad from the successor. Uh, this stage included interpretations from the people of the book. They were from companions who had converted, such as Wahb ibn Munabbih, Ka'b al-Ahbar, Abdullah ibn Salam. Um, it, it, this third stage also had the big monumental tafsir work of Ibn Jarir al-Tabari, right? Uh, in this stage, many scholars were more open to exert their intellects in interpretation of the Qur'an, right? This is all realities of the fourth stage, um, and, and that's the one that we were uh, talking about now, the third stage, and then also the fourth stage. Uh, and then the next one, again, this is still with the fourth stage, the great imams, and the madhahib, this is, um, with this fourth stage, it tells you about the four imams. Was there only four imams? No, of course there wasn't. There was many other fuqaha during this time frame, some of them even superior than some of these imams. But why then these four schools? Because these schools gained the support from the powers of the time, one, and also had the student base that spread the knowledge throughout the land, two, and were preserved in book form, three. Many books were written about these madahib, and their students carried the knowledge to the far east and west of the ummah. That's why we ended up with four madahib that are widely received. Even though initially there were more, and there was much more scholarship, but it began narrowing down into these four. Who are they? Imam Abu Hanifa. He was the Imam of Kufa. He was from the 80th year after Hijrah until the one and the year 150 after Hijrah. His name is Nu'man ibn Thabit. The second of them was Imam Malik ibn Anas. He was from the year 93 after Hijrah, and he passed away in the year 179. And he was referred to as Imam Dar al-Hijrah. What's Dar al-Hijrah? That's Medina. He was the Imam of Medina. And then we have the third one, Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi'i. is Imam al-Shafi'i. He was in Iraq first, then in Egypt, uh, as in terms of his madhab. He was from the year 150, so he was born in the year that Imam Abu Hanifa died. 
And he continued on until the year 204 after Hijrah. And then the fourth of these is Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, who was a contemporary for Imam Shafi'i, a little younger than him, not too much. He 164 after Hijrah, and he passed away in 241 after Hijrah. These are the four great Imams. We're going to talk about them more, inshallah, and a little bit about their madhahib uh, in the next session, bi'idnillah. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take our last pause for our one-day intensive, and then we're going to resume for our last session. It's going to be about the madhahib, and it's going to be about why scholars differ, and it's going to be about the causes of disagreement and how to understand textual evidences and the sources of Islamic law. We're going to do this all in the last session, inshallah. So I'm going to take a pause here, and we'll continue uh, in about five minutes. Subhanakallah, muhammadik, nashadu illa illa, nastaghfiruka, natubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum.